Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcasts on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Vanessa Calderelli is the president of EcoEra, a conservation group protecting 7,500 acres of rainforest in one of the most biodiverse regions of Costa Rica. Their mission is to protect the rainforest by preventing poaching and deforestation and to reconnect people with nature, which they're also doing through their sister project, Posada Natura, a wellness retreat devoted to holistic healing. We talked about how Vanessa's family got involved with this land, the ecological function of the rainforest, the species they're trying to protect from poaching, the factors that contribute to tropical deforestation, and we just kind of chatted about things like globalism and Zen Buddhism. It was a really fun conversation, and I want to thank Vanessa and EcoEra for reaching out to spread the word about their efforts down there in Costa Rica. To learn more, you can visit ecoera.org. I'm joined today by Vanessa Calderelli from EcoEra. Vanessa, what's going on? Hey, Dylan. Thanks for having me. It's, I'm excited to talk with you about what we're doing down in Costa Rica. Yeah, me too. I, uh, I'm really excited. I love Costa Rica. I've been there once. My wife and I, we honeymooned there. And ever since, we're like, all right, we got to find a way to get back there. It was so perfect for what we wanted to do. Just kind of peaceful and nature. And it was it was incredible. So you've been going there since you were a kid, right? Yeah, I've been my whole life. I've been traveling there uh, with my family. My parents started a conservation project, which is Eco Era. I know, which I'm now the president of. Um, Before I was born, they started it and they were vacationing there, similar to you and your wife, honeymoon situation. And they just totally fell in love with the rainforest and there was a, about a thousand acre chunk that was scheduled to be clear cut or being sold as a pretty much a timber sale or cattle sale. And they bought it and they decided to start conserving the rainforest. And so I was born into that traveling down there as a kid. And that was always like normal to me as a kid. I, I now yeah. can see that's not so so normal uh, to be raised no, in that pretty, way <laughs> yeah it's pretty fortunate that's uh that's pretty special and it's near so tell me exactly where it is because i i kind of looked into it but i couldn't tell where you know the border of your land is which is probably by design i know you don't want people you know you're working against poaching and things like that sure yeah and it's sort of a great thing that nobody really knows. i think the land the area is called Cerro nara and it's on the southern Pacific coast, maybe 15 kilometers inland of Manuel Antonio Beach, which is a pretty popular area. And it stretches, the 7,500 acres stretches from coast to coast, so all the way to the Caribbean coast. And Serenara is largely unknown, mostly because it's been privately protected for the last 40 years by various mm. different uh, families and individual people. 
Um, so most of the conservation that happens there is actually just private conservation. Um, and it's, yeah, largely unknown, mostly because there's just not really any human traffic there. There is poaching that we protect against, and that's more of like a local kind of issue. Um, but we've really been able to mitigate that uh, collectively as private landowners. Really? How do you do that? Pretty much just by having caretakers at certain entry points, significant entry points into the lands. We So there's about four families in the area that are have the most significant land ownings, my family being one of them. And each of our lands has a different entry point. And so we've pretty much just pinpointed those entry points and put in a caretaker who lives there full time. Um, and they also go through, when a poacher can get in, they, they're, our caretakers are continuously doing rounds throughout the lands to sort of just take out their traps. Um, whenever they find them, they just take them down. So we can't completely erase poaching, but we do a really good job. Um, the lands are also zoned by the government and our families actually were a part in having this happen. They're zoned as a zona protectora, which just means they're a protective zone. So development isn't allowed legally there. Um, and in Costa Rica, it's sort of a funny structure because there's these environmental zones that can be privately owned by people. So they cannot be developed, but the owner is responsible for making sure that they're protected. Yeah, so I talked to some people that have uh, like a conservation easement in the U.S. It's similar. It's like you can't really develop. You are limited to certain activities, but you can steward the land. Yes, pretty much exactly like that. Okay, so you're in a protected zone. The poachers, what are they targeting exactly? Like what are the species that they're going for? Yeah, uh, good question. The poachers, the main species they're going for is a type of rodent uh, which is commonly known as a paca in Costa Rica, it's called a tepesquintle. And it's a very, I guess it's a really tasty meat. Um, so, mm. and it's becoming endangered in that area. So that's one of the number one species that's being poached. The other ones are mostly for fur. So that's monkeys, birds for the feathers, jaguar, if they can find them, the jaguar are pretty much almost extinct. Um, all different sorts of cats. It, there's so many different kinds of colorful birds and feathers are so valuable for sale and jewelry and gar different garbs. And um, yeah. same with monkey fur and it's a big problem, but the main but we those are harder to catch and um, they're definitely harder the, to poach for the tepis squintly is a little bit easier so and again like i said our caretakers do a really good job of dissembling the traps and uh protect guarding against anybody entering i'll have to put up a picture of one of those with the episode because i don't think myself or or most of the people listening know what that looks like they're pretty cute they're like <laughs> <laughs> They're like these little brown sort of gerbil looking things with sort of like 
look like baby deer with little white spots on them. Oh, okay. I think I, I think I've seen a picture perusing your Instagram. Um, a little looked like a little spotted fawn rodent. Yeah, thing. that would be it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool. I love that. Well, let's back up a little bit. Let's talk a little bit more about your family and yourself and y'all's conservation ethic. Was this just kind of, um, you know, were your parents hobbyist conservationists? Like, is this a second passion of theirs or was that their occupation? Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, this was, I guess they were hobbyists. They, <laughs> I think it was just born out of like a true love for the rainforest. They went there and like I said, they just fully fell in love with the lands there. And my mom was a CPA. My dad was a contractor. Um, mm. They lived primarily in the United States. Um, my dad, my parents split and my dad really took over Eco Era and started and made it sort of his life's work. And um, at the end of his life, he's passed away. At the end of his life, he um, fully had transitioned out of being a contractor and was just doing conservation work and our side project, which is uh, a wellness retreat center at the base of the conservation site. So he had fully just transitioned into doing that work. And wow. yeah, it, um, but yeah, it was really born out of just in a time when people didn't were not really concerned about the climate i think they were my parents were sort of ahead of their time in that way and seeing yeah. that this was going to be necessary to have preserved forests one day and costa rica at that point hadn't even really fully embraced um you know now they're considered very forward thinking in ecotourism and renewable energy and things like that but Back then, that was probably just beginning, right? I think so. I think Manuel Antonio National Park had only sort of just in recent years become this tourist attraction. They were not super forward thinking on as a country on environmental issues. I think really the wave of the generation of my parents and other, a lot of people uh, foreign people went to Costa Rica during that time and just started privately buying up land and conserving it and doing regenerative ag and really learning about the natural world in that way. And that was sort of the first expat culture that went to Costa Rica. And I think they drove a lot of what the country then went on to develop as ecotourism and oh. environmental policy. And that makes sense. Yeah. And seeing that you know, foreigners were interested in that. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Well, you mentioned agriculture. I saw in your bio that you had studied um, at a, I guess, a, a Zen Buddhist community and you learned some agriculture there. Can you tell me about that experience? Oh, yeah. I, that was my own sort of little trying to get out of society moment. Uh, when I was in my early 20s, I went uh, straight out of college to live at a, the San Francisco Zen Center a branch of the San Francisco Zen Center um, in Mir Beach, California, and they mm -hmm. have a little organic farm. And yeah, I spent two years there farming and practicing Zen Buddhism. I mean, in a lot of ways, it really did inform the work I do now in conservation and in our wellness programs. And I mean, the whole premise of Zen is seeing the world as your mirror and seeing yourself in all things or seeing all things in yourself. 
um, and developing a true loving, compassionate relationship with the world and others. And yeah, that really deeply informs my work now. Hmm. With that kind of arrangement, um, I'm ignorant to these sort of things. Do do they pay you? Do they just give you room and board in exchange (laughs) for labor? Like, how does that work? Yeah, they, it's sort of like a work trade. Uh, I was an apprentice. So I, this exchange is that I work on the farm. I practice Zen with them and in exchange, I get to live there and eat there. And there's about 80 people in that community, um, more or less. And everybody is pretty much doing that same situation. Everyone's there for the purpose of practicing Zen. Um, So that's an absolute requirement to live there. Um, And then there's different work opportunities. So I just requested that I could work on the farm because that's what I was interested in learning. And this was pre-pandemic. I wonder, like, how many people went to live in Zen Buddhist colonies during the pandemic. I bet it was a lot. I, you know, I think it would have been, but I think the institution of the San Francisco Zen Center kind of shut down and stopped letting people come in because they were trying to keep their community safe. Mm. Um, I'm not sure how many, I'm sure a lot of people would have loved to go live there or wish they had already been living there but I think it got pretty much shut down also. That's a bummer. Yeah. So you're using that now. I know you uh, You mentioned kind of the sister project, which is like a wellness center that where you take people into the rainforest. And I, I saw some cool stuff on the website. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so our sister project, which is called Posada Natura, and it's a spiritual sanctuary wellness center. It's at the base of our conservation site. And all of our programs are based around some sort of alternative healthcare um, and wellness or spiritual activity. And our theory behind the work we do is that if we're making humans well again in a way that's connected to the natural world, giving people opportunities to connect to the natural world in the context of wellness, um, this healing that people are able to go through then directly will translate to the environment. When people are able to leave a space and have greater care and compassion and love for the natural world, this creates a chain effect. Then the natural world starts to become more healthy also because people are actually taking care of it. So my opinion is that humans are really causing the massive decline in the natural world and which is unprecedented in this time and I think the more that we're able to heal the emotional psychological issues that humans are facing the more that the natural world will also be benefited and it's sort of this positive feedback loop so most of our retreats actually all of our retreats involve some element of nature immersion into our conservation site And not just uh, going on a walk through nature, but really helping people connect to nature and seeing us as a part of the cyclical processes of this earth and how we're related to the earth and that we're not just separate humans. And so we do this kind of nature immersion. We do in other kind of works that we do, we do nature therapy even, which involves sort of a deeper relaxation into a pool of water or 
connecting to um, meditation in the forest and having longer immersions in nature as a way to actually have therapeutic benefits for people. I saw a really great one where you had um, wildland firefighters come down and it was like, it was kind of a perfect situation because they were able to help you guys build some of the infrastructure you needed based on their experience. And you were kind of giving them this time away from the chaos and the, you know, the fear and the, the trauma of fighting these crazy fires. Uh, it was a, it was a great situation. Are you still doing that? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I'm really excited about that project. I feel like it, helps on so many levels with what's going on in the world today with fires and wildland firefighter burnout. Um, but yeah, we've been doing that. We launched that program two years ago and we've done it for the past two years. It's taken on sort of different variations as we're getting our footing on what it's going to look like, but we're, we're, we've developed it directly with wildland firefighters and our whole process with that is in seeing Obviously, the rate of wildfires is increasing sort of exponentially at this point. I mean, they're getting worse every year. And with that, wildland firefighters are getting completely burned out. You know, wildland mm -hmm. firefighting used to be a job that was sort of what a young man in his early 20s did sort of for fun or for an adventure. Or it wasn't like so intense as it is now it wasn't so it means always life-threatening but there was an element of like it wasn't a huge as huge of a problem as it is now and as they're increasing the burnout is increasing also but they're not really being compensated there's no care in that industry for them there's no psychological support there's no trauma support uh, there's no burnout support. There's really because simply because it's really relatively new that fires have gotten so bad. Um, I, I don't know if it was necessary before. I mean, I'm sure it was always necessary, but at the rate that it's happening now, not so much. And so um, we saw this opportunity to create sort of this symbiotic relationship between our organization and their community in which we have them come down and lend us a hand with their forestry skills that they have from firefighting and us giving them a retreat in return. And those retreats involve um, healing practices, rejuvenating practices, group integration circles, sort of like really calming the nervous system, um, focused on giving them a break and having them learn how to relax and find healing through each other and through community in a context of non-stress and just calm. And we're seeing this also in, you know, how with the whole global carbon cycle, it's getting wildfires are creating more carbon into the atmosphere and what's cleaning that up rainforests and so there's sort of this like social positive feedback loop between our organization and the wildland community and then also this like earth relationship of like these wildfires need the rainforest to clean up the extra carbon so that's interesting yeah yeah i you know 
I feel like I, I have sort of a basic academic knowledge of a rainforest function and that biome, but like I'm probably more comfortable with ecosystems where I've spent more time. Like talk to me a little bit about sort of the function of that rainforest like you just were and the the ecological role that it's playing in you know in that context. Sure, yeah. So rainforests are are what are known as carbon sinks, which I don't know if you know what that is, but it's pretty much just a place that cleans up more carbon than it emits. So, and they're able to do this because they're such extreme regions of biodiversity and the biodiversity, especially in our region, um, because it's been pretty much untouched by humans um, is very great. And the way that it functions is on a rainforest is by canopy layers. And so each layer sort of has its own micro ecosystem within that. So it's sort of like the rainforest is sort of like an ecosystem within an ecosystem within an ecosystem. It's so incredibly diverse and fertile. And because it's so fertile, it's constantly growing. It's like something dies and the next thing is alive and a tree is now fully grown it's exponentially growing and dying and rebirthing and but a lot of the carbon is above ground right like compared to a grassland ecosystem where the soil is storing the majority of the carbon in a rainforest it's more in biomass right yes yes definitely okay. mm-hmm. yeah and so yeah so the rainforest is just pretty much the lungs of our planet i mean they're really doing some heavy lifting for us right now at this time. <laughs> <laughs> heavy breathing. And the, threats, yeah. and the threats to, you know, we hear a lot about the Amazon rainforest. You're, uh, you have some kind of similar but different threats over there, right? Like what are the main, you talked about poaching. Um, I, I know with deforestation in the Amazon, people talk about cattle and palm oil and, things like that. What are the major products or crops that are kind of um, threatening the rainforest in Costa Rica? It's the same cattle and palm oil. Um, Oh, it's palm oil there too. Yeah. There's huge palm oil in Costa Rica. And I mean, yeah, big oil crops um, sort of like a interesting form of extraction. Um, And yeah, a lot of the Costa Rican rainforest has been destroyed for palm oil plants and for cattle um the cattle less so it's the cattle is mostly like local uh kind of people it's not huge industry but the palm oil and Costa Rica also used to be huge banana production um I think they're more shifted towards palm oil now um and yeah, like, I, I mean, our, we don't have to worry about that because we're privately protected. Um, but it is sort of becoming a larger and larger problem in Costa Rica. Even places that are supposed to be protected have can sometimes somehow through the law become palm oil plants, which I'm not exactly sure how that happens. Mm. Costa Rica is a funny country because it's really hard to understand the law. It's um, very muddy and they're getting more clear as time passes and they're 
developing, um, but it's still very muddy. It's hard to understand what exactly you're allowed to get away with and what people are allowed to do. Yeah. I remember too, um, now that you say bananas, I remember um, pineapple. When we were there, my wife and I, we went for this guided, um, we went with a guide through this rainforest and, and she was talking to us about how horrible pineapple crops are and how they uh, contribute to deforestation and they're, you know, it's ecologically bare. These plants don't, you know, they, they kind of produce very uh, at a very low rate and it just kind of strips this area of its ecological function. And then at the end of the hike, she cut up a pineapple and served <laughs> it to all of us. And we were all like, <laughs> wait a second. Um, okay. Uh, it was a little odd. Yeah. Enjoy this fruit but, that destroys our land. Yeah. That's one thing that, you know, I think with, when you learn about those products, I mean, everything has an impact everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't matter. Even if you think there's a trade-off, electric car, whatever. There, We could talk about that for days. But I do think there are certain things that, as a consumer, you can watch out for. Palm oil being one of them. Globally, it's just disastrous to rainforests from Asia to South to Central oh, yeah. America. And it's in a lot of processed foods, a lot of candies and chocolates and things like that. But it's also in a whole bunch of other things that you might be surprised at. Um, yeah. I think people listening if the, if you're concerned with deforestation um read the labels on some of your stuff look for palm oil it's everywhere it's completely everywhere it's in cosmetics it's used as biofuel it's just i mean it's it's another type of oil extraction it really just is um under the guise of sort of a more a less impactful thing but it's it's really bad for the planet i mean any mon- monocrop is not good um, yeah. anything that's stripping away biodiversity is probably harming the planet. Um, so I think, yeah, the way yeah. that we really can contribute to helping the earth is just by trying to be more local. I know it's like so simple, but it's just like such an easy way to help. Yeah. It's the first step for sure. Right. Like from, uh, you know, I talk a lot about the power of, of consumers, and I think that's the first thing you can do is just try to make your circle of consumption smaller. And economies that, uh, you know, countries that understand this, like Costa Rica and embrace this, uh, I think have a huge leg up. But, I mean, it is odd, right, because Costa Rica has this stunning biodiversity. They're able to They're able to produce... Most of their, uh, I think 99% of their power through hydroelectrics and wind farms. And they're actually able to export uh, energy to to surrounding countries, I was reading. But like most countries don't have the ability to to sustain their natural resources Mm -hmm. like that and and collect money off of ecotourism. I feel like a lot of places have to extract and export resource just to support this many people on the planet, you know? Yeah, definitely. You know, even Costa Rica, I think the the problem that I'm seeing is that there's this global trade market. It's like the more global we are, the more it actually is harming the earth. This is why even ecotourism, I question, I, it's another form of, capitalizing on the earth it's another 
form of extraction in a way. It's not really bringing people into a deeper, I mean, it's obviously better than like going in and destroying a place, of course, but it's also very disruptive to wildlife and it's not really putting people into a deeper connection with the forest. It's giving people sort of a museum experience or another entertainment experience instead of making, having people like truly connect and understand why the rainforest is important or why the natural Mm. world is, how the, how we are related to the natural world. And I think this is something Costa Rica, Costa Rica is a really interesting place. You know, there's like, as you said, a lot of renewable um, energy sources and they'll go into one of the cleanest rivers in the entire world and put in a dam and sort of destroy that whole entire watershed. And it's, it's a trade-off. I mean, it's like, what are we willing to do to develop a place? Um, Can we really, that's always my question. Can we really develop in a way that's sustainable for the earth and the way that we're living? Yeah. I I have a strong aversion to, to, globalist ideas as well and like i heard I, I think it was elon musk or bill gates or one of these people talking about oh the earth can support another three billion people we just need to innovate and i'm like that is so misguided <laughs> that is not <laughs> like are we trying to just max out mother earth's capacity what 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 earth is that you know it's <laughs> I, I don't i don't understand that uh notion of like we can just invent our way out of this because um in some ways i would argue the opposite i I feel like we need to regress in some ways to to make our way out of this i think so too i i (laughs) i i completely agree i i don't know i live in a really small town um and you know there's about 1500 people in this town and the local economy really thrives here. I mean, we've really figured out how there's a lot of off-grid housing. There's a lot of um, very inventive ways of living here and a lot of wild game hunting, a lot of fishing and uh, people growing their own gardens. And it really works and people are really happy. And I think about, you know, this like endless consuming that's happening in most parts of the world that's completely destroying local economies and nature and the way that we can learn to live communally. I mean, it's really, it's almost like this monster that's just eating everything. And I think like simplifying back into the ways that we used to live will actually just make everybody happier. I don't know. Let's start the great regression, Vanessa. Let's let's I lead it. I agree. <laughs> I agree. I don't know if I'm ready for Zen Buddhism, but um, you know, <laughs> some aspects of I would love to be more local and um, you know, in, in the ways that we're talking about. But um, I do want to learn a little bit more about y'all's organization and kind of your goals, like in the long term, what do you hope this, uh, you know, I know that you have neighbors that you're working with. Are you guys hoping to expand this? Um, are you hoping to do anything that places more permanent protections here? Like, what are you thinking long term? Yeah, we're, 
we're finding solutions for permanent protection. It's actually quite hard in Costa Rica. Um, you wouldn't think so by the way that they're presenting the, themselves to the world, but um, most of the conservation work is done privately in Costa Rica, even though there is zoned protected areas. Interesting. What will happen is the government um, will sometimes try to come in and actually seize private property that's in protected zones, and they'll use that land for um, extraction. And they'll use, they also will use that land to get, there's some sort of, um, I guess, like funding that comes from Europe to Costa Rica for conservation. And so in theory, people like us, private owners, should be getting some of that money to help preserve our land. Because the reality is it costs a lot of money to yeah. preserve land. I mean, to pay caretakers and like, prevent poaching and deforestation it's a lot of work and the government does not help us like we really do everything by ourselves and we have been in fights uh, my family and our neighbors with the government for 20 years with them trying to seize our land from us Um, under the guise of they need to protect it but we're saying no we're actually doing a better job because what happens when so what happens when the when the Costa Rican government um, takes over land is they actually just stop putting money towards protecting it and then people who want to take wood come in start deforesting and start squatting start poaching start mm-hmm. hunting and the land is just completely abandoned to anyone's whim of what they want to use for it and sometimes the government just will turn a blind eye to any extractive person coming in and taking what they want so it's sort of weird what's happening there Hmm. um it's actually our goal is which we've been also working on for the past 20 years is to create our lands into an official wildlife refuge within costa rica this will pretty much make it protected forever because once it's the lands are put into a refuge, they cannot be seized by the government. Um, Can you they are already to manage them. Yes, we'll we'll ha- we'll be able to manage them. So that's our. It's sort of like, I guess, the equivalent of five hundred one c three in the U.S. Um, within Costa Rica um, related to wildlife. And so it'll be still managed by a board and um, still privately owned, but by a wildlife refuge. And so this is one of the ways we're trying to have the lands be permanently protected. Um, It's a hard process. It, uh, I don't want to say they don't want to give it to us, but there's a lot of blocks that sometimes can feel that way. Um, so that's one of our goals. Um, another goal is building um, out our regenerative agriculture um, programs and sort of farm on our lands. We, we do have some farming happening that's regenerative and akin to permaculture. Um, we would love to develop that out. We live in 
uh, a very rural area. And so one of our goals would be to definitely be able to teach the locals about how to sustain their life with food um, that's grown on in their backyard. Um, And the local community is kind of just like completely unaware of what the rainforest is and um, doesn't really seem to care that much. There's a few locals who deeply love the forest and a lot of them just kind of will throw their trash on the ground. Um, don't really understand what. It's really funny how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Like you would think the people, it, it is unfortunate. It often seems that way in uh, less I don't know what the right term is, you know, developing countries, I guess, um, that, you know, the people who you would think would be the, the most fierce protectors are uh, often not, and they don't seem to, to share the same conservation. I think I think it's just a matter of, um, like you said, kind of helping people along to understand the common goal, right? Definitely. I think it's an element of education also. Like, they're educated by, I mean there is a Catholic church that kind of took over the school and they watch TV and they are fed, you know, Coca-Cola and potato chip. Like it's like what they, they haven't seen the world in the way I have seen the world. They haven't traveled to places that are completely destroyed and seen what that looks like. They just live in a preserved place. They don't understand, you know, they don't understand. Um, It's not their fault. You know, it's just the the culture they've been grown up in and they're, they've been completely, you know, their indigenous ancestors were brutalized in that area. They, their culture was wiped out and it's really heartbreaking. And so they're kind of just like these people that are left there and they don't know. Um, so I don't blame them, but would love to teach them, would love to show them, like, I think if they understood their the way that the rainforest supports them and the land could support them in terms of food and water um, and shelter, they wouldn't have the same attitude that they do. Um, I think if they also understood the way that the rest of the world is, I mean, from our, from the watershed on our land, it feeds five towns of water um, and it's some of the cleanest water in the world, you know, and so this directly benefits the locals. I mean, if we weren't conserving that land, I don't know what the water would be like. I don't know if it would be dumped with pollutants and cattle off, run off. I, you know, so I think it's just simply a matter of education. So that to your question is another thing that one of our goals is um, regenerative agriculture and education and research center um to build up top and not only educating the locals but educating anybody who wants to come in and learn about the biodiversity of our area and how special it is i mean it's really a special place yeah i don't think it'd be a hard sell to get some uh some people to come study that place (laughs) oh no i mean we've already had studies done you know we had like a two-year study done a few years ago from the University of Costa Rica and biologists and wow I what they found out about our land I mean I already suspected it was you know 
we already all knew that it was biodiverse, but they were like so many endemic species they found and just like, just incredible, you know, like the water tables and everything that they found there. I, I was shocked about. I saw a figure a couple days ago poking around online. I think it said 12% of the world's biodiversity uh, can be attributed to Costa Rica, which I, I mean, that is a crazy amount if that's, if that's right. I mean, I'm sure a lot of that is beetles and, and birds and, and things like that, but wow. I'm sure a lot of it is the bugs, but the bugs really are a huge part of the ecosystems yeah. here. They do a lot of the work and the bacteria. Um, I never, I didn't, I had not heard that. I'm, I'm impressed. Don't, don't quote that. me on that. <laughs> It seems really high. How much time do you get to spend down there? Are you down there like every year? Yeah, I spend a few months of the year there, maybe three to four months wow. uh, down there. What's kind of the, the best season to be there? Well, depends on what you're interested in. The tourist season is January to, or maybe December to April because it's the least amount of rain during that time. So that's when people really like to go on vacation. Um, to me, the best time is August because that's when my favorite fruits are fruiting. So I'm more interested in <laughs> what the land is, what the way I'm able to interact with the land. Um, Cause I, I don't really go there to tour. So sure. yeah. Um, I was wondering, we, we touched a little bit on the, you know, the, the political situation and some of the, um, the state protected land. I know the system is different and I, you may not know a ton about this, but can you tell me what you know about how sort of national parks and, and protected lands are structured in Costa Rica? Like, is it similar to the U S? Yeah, I think, I think it's similar. I'm not. I'm not exactly sure. I think the way that it's different is that they're mostly privately owned mm -hmm. um, or at least have some sort of um, private government connection. Um, I, I'm certain that there's landowners that work in junction with the government to do conservation work or park work. Um, and so I think that's generally how it's happening it's there's the organization that's mostly doing the environmental protection work in costa rica is called minai which is the ministry of environment energy and telecommunications okay and their cnac which is um sort of this like intermediary between private landowners and minai they're an agency of minai I think does a lot of the work with conservation. Um, so that's an option for people to do. I think it, a lot of conservation work happens that way because um, it's easier. There's the government is more ready to give you funding that way. Um, but if you go to Manuel, Manuel Antonio or something that is nationally owned, federally owned yeah. national park. Land. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that then you is, just have yeah. a collection of, of preserves and re, uh, biological refuge, kind of private lands, is what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Yes. I think there's various ways that 
Costa Rica does it. Manuel Antonio is like a major federally owned land. Um, it's also huge tourist destination. Um, and it's sort of suffering because of that. I mm. mean, the human footprint through there, is, there is a lot of human traffic walking through Manuel Antonio and they're having to bring in animals from other parts of the rainforest into Manuel Antonio so that the tourists can see monkeys and sloths oh. that are otherwise don't want to be there. It really disturbs the wildlife. Um, so this is one of the ways that, yeah, ecotourism can be destructive to a place. And, that's interesting. You know, there's so much trash that's left there. It's really, it's really, um, it's hard. It's a hard balance to figure out what to do. But yeah, I think the structures there, I think what's really great about Costa Rica is that conservation is largely supported to be private. And I think that actually just in the end benefits the rainforest more. Yeah, no, I, I could totally see that. I mean, even here domestically, that's generally the case that privately conserved lands are managed better and um, more capably. Yeah, because usually they're owned by people who bought them because they care about the rainforest. I mean, that there's not really a lot of money incentive in that work. You know, it's not a lot of federally protected lands. There's some sort of economic drive somewhere in there. And privately protected land, it's just like for the love of the land, straight up. Yeah, yeah. So you're getting ready to head down there pretty soon then, right? Yeah, I'll be heading down there in July. Cool. And spending about a month there. I love it. And you're going to be leading those programs, the wellness programs? Yeah, I don't lead the programs. I just... Um, manage the business and operations um so okay. we have other facilitators that we bring in to be leaders in those programs and yeah our program our conservation project is mostly funded by our for-profit wellness retreat center so pretty much everything extra profit that we make from that goes right back into the rainforest and funds eco era we also have very generous donors who help us um but yeah everything is all of our funds are given to us pretty much so it's if people do want to donate or if they want to uh go on on the wellness retreat aspect of it where should people go is it the same website or two different websites yeah well our eco era is ecoera.org and we have a donation page. It's just ecoera.org slash donate. And um, our wellness retreat center is called Posada Natura. And that's posadanatura.com. Posada means and, inn or hotel? Yeah, it means like an inn, sort okay. of. Yeah, it's like nature's inn. And it really is. It's like a spectacular place on the river. It's just right at the base of our reserve. And it's so all the structures and accommodations and facilities are integrated in with the forest and gardens. And it's just so lovely. And yeah, it's really, truly a blessing 
that we can do our conservation work also helping other people heal. Yeah, that's a great situation. I, uh, what are your clientele like? A lot of people come who are seeking, who are in life transitions, who are seeking help in integrating and processing what they've gone through. So a lot of people come from a more kind of from a trauma background um, who are really searching for a deep attention and work on themselves. Um, very people who are in a very sensitive state and they're looking for a deeper type of nourishment or a different type of healing work or wellness experience to sort of help them shift into a new pattern and way of living their life. And our programs are longer. Um, some of them can last for three months. So it gives people a sort of, yeah, just like a deeper experience of themselves and their interrelation with the natural world. We do um, addiction recovery programs that take place partially at our, um, with some of our other partner organizations. Um, they take partially, partially take place at Posada Nature and partially online. Um, and we do long-term integration programs also, which is sort of integrating experiences such as, um, yeah, coming out of rehab, coming out of chemotherapy, coming out of um, veterans come. It's, it's sort of people who are looking for that kind of um, deeper attention. We also do 10 day retreats and everybody comes to the, I mean, everybody, it's usually our clientele is people who are really seeking something like in a really deep way. So um, yeah, we do shorter and longer retreats. Nice. Folks, if you're lost and seeking, <laughs> you know where to go. <laughs> yeah, come beautiful. to us. We'll take care of you. <laughs> the photos are beautiful. I mean, you've got a really special uh, piece of land there, and I'm, I'm glad your parents had that foresight. That's super lucky. Yeah, it's really, it's really a blessing. Super special. I feel really honored to be able to steward these lands. I I, I'm like, don't know what, why I was born into this life, but I figure, okay, there's some reason that I was given the opportunity to help make this world into a better place for the future. So I'm trying my best to do that. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I think um, what y'all are doing really fits in with kind of the, the theme of this podcast and uh, trying to you know, regain some semblance of, of closeness to nature. So I really appreciate you uh, being interested in the podcast as well. And uh, it was a pleasure meeting you. Yeah, it was really a pleasure meeting you too. Thank you so much for all you do as well. Cool. Yeah, I'll be following along um, on social media and uh, we'll post some pictures of some of the stuff that we've talked about with this episode so people can see. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dylan. All right. Thanks, Vanessa. Thanks, Vanessa.